Good morning. It's another beautiful Lord's Day today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 still. And uh, this is a really great passage. And we're going to get a little bit technical in parts of it about some of the Greek language and stuff, but don't worry about that. You can, hang, you can handle it. Okay? Last time in our look at Philippians 1, um, well, you know, all the way through so far, we really gained insights into the Apostle Paul and his, his inner life, because he's very expressive and very transparent about himself. And you, I think you kind of come to the question sometimes about him, how could he endure so much difficulty, pain, and danger, and still be so effective as a Christian missionary? And, and what can we learn from that? Well, the answer is really in a very short sentence. It's the last verse we looked at last week in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Jesus Christ is not an add-on to Paul's life. He's not just the religion part. He's not peripheral. He isn't somebody Paul would just get around to at certain times, or only turned to in a crisis or anything like that, Paul understood in a very deep way what Jesus means in a man's life. Jesus was life to Paul, obviously by saving his soul, but, but in every way, Jesus was the provider of everything that matters, especially peace with God, and a purpose that serves God as God deserves, a, a purpose that every believer is called to. You really can't call Jesus Savior from the heart and keep him on the fringes of your life. For to me, to live is Christ, he says. Now, I think there's a danger here when we think about Paul. Some people think, well, you know, Paul was different. He was not a man like us. He didn't have other responsibilities like, like we do. Of course, it's true. Paul was single single by choice. He didn't have to worry about a wife and kids. It's true he was called by Jesus personally, rather dramatically, into full-time ministry, and most of us haven't had quite that level of experience. He was an apostle, and there were only a few of those, and that made him very special. So you might be tempted to think that um, Jesus had to be the center of Paul's life, like that's just the way it automatically was, or it was easy for him, you know, you might be thinking along those lines sometimes, but I wouldn't say that. I don't think that's accurate at all. You could say legitimately that the claims of Jesus on a man's life are more obvious in the sight of men if he's in ministry and doesn't have very many family obligations like Paul. However, there are many men who've had dramatic conversions to Christ and served as missionaries or pastors and then crashed, crashed and burned. Because they can lose sight of Jesus as your very life, as that central place in life. Their work may seem like he should be central in it, but we're all sinners. And much of that ministry work is actually work. There are spiritual dangers in that work. They, uh, a minister or a missionary or somebody in full-time Christian service can be so task-focused that they don't have that deep relationship with Christ as the center of their life, their personal life. They can become discouraged and low in spirits and feel that God is very far away from them. Many people crash and burn on the mission field. That's not uncommon. They can put their feelings first 
and focus on that all the time and not the Lord, that's not uncommon. Uh, the temptation of people in ministry are as great as anybody else's, and I think it's probably safe to say Satan probably targets them more. So it's not so much what you do, it's where Christ is in your life. A businessman with a big family and many family duties can have Christ as the center of his life, while a pioneer missionary without any of those distractions can lose Christ as the center of his life. So the secret, the telling thing about any person is what they affirm ongoing every day in their heart and what or who they choose to make central to their life. Paul chose Christ, and we are called to do that as well. For to me, to live is Christ, he says. That means he cares most about Christ. Jesus has the first place in his mind, in his heart. Uh, I like the word affections, in his affections. He loves Jesus more than anything else, and his life is all built around him. And so he's going to serve him. Every Christian can and should cultivate that kind of devotion to Christ, no matter what his or her circumstances are. And yes, Paul was an apostle, but I don't think the Bible gives us the impression that being an apostle made Paul's situation a whole lot easier. In fact, I was thinking back to a couple places in Corinthians, but especially this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where he describes himself to the Corinthian church like this, to this present hour... We are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. You know, most of us don't have to keep Christ as the center of our lives while we're the scum of the world. That's a unique challenge, and that can wear on a man. But in spite of it all, Paul really did keep Christ central. It wasn't easy. He will say in Philippians chapter 4 that he had to learn contentment. All that he endured and suffered taught him that. Because he kept his eyes on Jesus, and for him, to live is Christ. So at this moment in, in our text, Paul sees two possibilities. Release from custody. Remember, he's in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. Or execution. Those are the two ways he thinks it's going to go. And he told us what his great purpose was in verse 20, that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. So he will exalt Christ, and however that plays out to him is good, life or death. And then he starts meditating out loud on which would be better, to depart or to stay, to live or to die. Both sound good to him, and he decides that one would be better for them, for the Philippians and the other people he's ministering to, and the other would be better for him. So verse 22, he says, If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, 
for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. So what's the best thing? It's to be with Christ. That is heaven in three words. Be with Christ. Notice he doesn't talk about mansions or rolling hills or green meadows or seeing his parents or the dear departed or anything like that. It's to be with Christ. That is his great hope of heaven. There will be many blessings there, but for a heart that loves Jesus, nothing else compares to being with him in heaven. That's why he says in verse 21, to die is gain. So the joy of heaven is Jesus himself. And that's why he's meditating out loud or in print. So his readers will see that Jesus is heaven's highest blessing and that they might catch that same understanding and desire. But notice what he says about staying. Paul says that staying will mean fruitful labor. Those are the words he uses. He will not just exist here. He won't just be waiting to die or smell the flowers of the earth a few times while he waits. He's going to bring forth fruit during his stay on this world. Every Christian should see their life as an opportunity for fruitful labor of some kind. These are the kinds of ways you can be fruitful. There's many different kinds of ways. Here's some. You can obviously represent God's light and joy in a dark world just by the way you conduct yourself and speak and um, all of that. You can share the gospel. You can support missionaries in a lot of different ways. You can encourage others in their faith, helping the weak and um, providing a good word for those who could need encouragement. You can disciple your own family. Um, all kinds of things you can do to bring forth fruit. And they're all good reasons to stay, to stay in this world, to wait a little longer for the joy of being with Jesus. That is the best thing. But serving the redemptive purpose of Jesus in this world, that might be the best thing now. That's how Paul sees it. So a Christian is on earth to bring more people into an eternal relationship with Jesus. So we're not going to lose what's coming if we stay a little bit longer. We will help others have that same perfect future. You got to remember the basic reality. Men, human beings, are estranged from God. And we have the word and the experience of reconciliation with God. So we can share that. We have something amazingly wonderful to offer, the best news in the world, that God will be reconciled to someone if they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So Paul not only thinks he should stay, but verse 24, he says, it's more necessary for your sakes. But he's pretty sure that it's not only that he thinks he's going to stay, he thinks God thinks that way too, that he should stay. So in verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Wow, there in verse 25 is a really good description of pastoral ministry right there, or any kind of ministry. Paul says he exists for their progress and joy in the faith. That should be the fruit of Christian ministry. 
the progress and joy in the faith of the people you're ministering to. Some folks seem to forget that a joyous faith is really the goal for us. Not a cowering faith, a fearful faith, or an angry faith. A pastor or a teacher or a shepherd worth his salt wants to see progress, spiritual growth, and joy. That's what they want. If their leadership is taking joy away, they're not doing it right. Now, he can't give joy to people. He can't make progress for you. We're all responsible to grow ourselves. But he should facilitate progress and joy with the right balance of truth, wonderful truth, and love. That's how ministry should happen. So the saints should not be cowering under a ministry, but rejoicing in the greatness and the goodness of God and the all-sufficient salvation that's provided by Jesus, our Savior, who lives and reigns today. Progress is not only what we should do, it's normal. It should be normal for us, right? The Bible compares being a Christian to being a, a, a baby. You know, Peter says, like a newborn babe, long for the milk of the word. When you're born again, you become a spiritual babe, right? So you got a lot of growing to do. We've had a lot of babies born around us lately, and they just start growing. And if, some, if they don't grow, there's something wrong, and everybody really worries. And then you got to take them to the doctor, right? So spiritual growth should be as natural as physical growth. It's just what we do. It's a, it's a mark of something wrong if we're not growing. So we should be making progress as children of God, learning, developing, growing, becoming more fruitful disciples of Jesus, becoming more faithful, becoming deeper thinkers about Christ and uh, applying him in all areas of our lives. And joy. Joy should be normal, too. God wants you to have a joyful Christian life. That doesn't mean easy. Paul very rarely, very, very rarely had it easy. I think you can tell that by reading the New Testament. But he was joyful. Philippians is called the epistle of joy. He's constantly talking about joy here. So going back to his specific situation, he's telling the Philippians that he will remain and continue in this world with them for their progress and joy in the faith. And then in verse 26... He says, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. You see that where it says, so that, it begins verse 26 there. That's what's called a purpose clause. And he's telling them about their reunion in their future. He's saying, so that we can be together again. So he's going to continue in this world so that they can exalt Christ and celebrate together when he sees them again. Verse 26 is... Got a couple of translation issues. It's just a little bit difficult to translate, so different versions might read it a little bit differently. But the thrust of it is clearly that he's looking forward to this face-to-face -face fellowship with them, with joy, where they're going to be celebrating and glorifying God and the Lord Jesus Christ together. They'll all be looking forward to it. So he's lifting them up by painting them a picture of that day that's going to come, he really believes, when he will be set free and he will be able to travel to Philippi and be with them again. So he's encouraging them. Then, in verse 27, Paul goes right for the application, and this is the part you really need to latch on to here. What should the Philippians do now? 
and by extension, you and I, right? All these words are applicable to all Christians at all times. And the overarching idea is to be mindful of what a Christ-honoring life should look like. So, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll just stop right there. This, this sentence is even more emphatic when you read it actually in the Greek text. It's, it's structured like this, and it's quite powerful. So if you're reading it in Greek, it goes, Only worthy of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves. So the, the word worthy is what's jumping out at you. In, in Greek, you can move a word to the begin, front of a sentence to give it more emphasis. It doesn't change the grammar situation at all. So that's how he's done it here. So the emphasis is on worthy. Are you living worthy of the gospel, only worthy of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves. So are you behaving like a redeemed sinner who found love and grace from a holy and righteous God? That's worthy. That's always a relevant and important question to ask ourselves. Are we living, are we conducting ourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel? And Paul uses a really interesting verb here uh, where it says conduct yourselves, or you have some variation of that in your translation, whatever you got. Usually Paul likes to say walk worthy. He talks about the worthy walk in Ephesians and in other places, but this time he chooses a word that's really rooted in the idea of being a citizen, uh, a member of what, you know, in the ancient world they called the polis, the the city-state. A citizen behaves as a member of the city-state. He represents his people and his culture. But here, uh, he's using that word and applying it to sort of being a gospel citizen. That's the idea, a member of the gospel community. A person who has embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, they act in a certain way, and often very different from those who don't know Christ. And I think Paul chooses the citizenship word here, and this is the only time he uses it in the epistles, because he wants to emphasize the unity of the Christian community as a rep- as a community, representation, represent, representing Christ as a as a group of people. So he's he's talking about unity quite a bit here in this epistle, and you know a lot of churches struggle with unity, and sometimes individually we struggle with unity within a body because we're all sinners and we all have our own weaknesses, right? And we're all we all have a greater tendency to be critical of other people more than we are of ourselves. So unity can sometimes be a problem. Sometimes it can be groups that actually are sort of antagonistic toward each other or families or things like that. We do know that there were a couple of ladies that weren't getting along in Philippi in the congregation. In chapter 4, he talks about Euodia and Syntyche, forever famous as two women who weren't getting along. That's all we know about them, unfortunately. I'm sure they're wonderful gals, and we'll see them in heaven. Everybody's going to ask, so what was the problem between you two girls? But I don't know. But some have speculated here that maybe there were factions aligning with them. I don't really see that in the text. It sounds like it's two women. But there could have been other cracks in the unity of the church at Philippi that Paul wants to address here, So, um, because unity is a big theme in Philippians. So he makes it very prominent. So verse 27 and verse 28 is actually one long sentence, but it's just loaded with content. And I like to break it down with uh, three S words, words that begin with the letter S. Standing, striving, and steady. Standing and striving go together. If you look at verse 27, he says, back again, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul wants you to hear that they are unified, standing in one spirit, striving with one mind. In fact, he uses a Hebraic structure here that ties these ideas together in a really beautiful way. It's always interesting in the New Testament when you see Hebrew uh, structures being written in Greek because his mind was Jewish, but he's writing in Greek. So um, he's still bringing his uh, Hebraic flavor of his language into this Greek uh, letter he's, that he's writing. It's a way, of, and the way uh, this Hebraic structure is designed to put things in your mind, to associate two things very tightly in your own mind. In English, we tend to use uh, direct parallels. We might say, we would probably say, standing firm in one spirit, striving together for the gospel. But Paul uses something different. He uses what's called a chiastic structure. What in the world is that? Well, the letter chi, C-H-I, or chi, as some people call it, chi uh, is just the letter X. And I want to show you what this would look like. So I'm going to sneak over to the board and the whiteboard, because I can do that in my classroom. It's much better to do that than it would be in a pulpit, huh? A regular pulpit. So follow me. Okay, so here we are at the whiteboard, and... I want you to notice this chiastic structure. It doesn't go A, B, A, B like it might in English where we say kind of parallel things. It goes A, B, and then it takes B again and puts it right next to the other B and goes A. So in this particular case, it's standing firm, right, in one spirit. And then the parallel goes this way, with one mind striving together. Now why do they call it a chiastic structure? Well, the letter key in Greek is our letter X. So B and B and A to A goes like that. Very common in the Bible, these chiastic structures. In fact, the entire story of Noah's flood is a gigantic, multi-chapter long chiastic structure. It's actually quite amazing. Somebody discovered that uh, in the last century in that whole section. But um, very common way to, to think in Hebrew. Okay, I'm going to go back to my pulpit now. So, that was a free lesson in linguistics in the Bible. <laughs> so, what is Paul saying? Well, let's talk about these elements. Stand firm. Standing is standing firm. That's the idea. Uh, it means to be committed to something, right? Paul loves to use stand. Uh, he uses that action verb quite often for the Christian. Probably the most famous place he uses it in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where it says, Be on the alert. Stand firm. Act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. It's a perfect balance of this strength and love thing there in that verse. Stand firm in the faith. That's what he says there. So um, here in, the Philipp in Philippians, the idea is to stand firm in unity for the sake of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit. So there's really an amazing unity among believers. And, you know, I've been in many places in the world, from Siberia to China to Haiti to Africa, and 
there is this unity of spirit amongst true Christians that's really amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. It's just there, this unity of spirit, because we all agree on the worthiness and the glory of Christ in our salvation, and we are united on the gospel of God's grace, which in Jesus makes sinners who are bound for hell to actually become children of God. I mean, that's an amazing thing. They're suddenly fit for heaven by the work of Jesus Christ. That's an incredible truth. So the the gospel is that our creator became a human and bore the weight of our sin himself so we can be truly reconciled to him. That's the heart of our faith. And that's got to be the source of our unity right there. We need to be firm in that, to stand firm on that. But he means more than doctrinal agreement here. We need to be together in Christ. So one spirit means affirming together the great truths of the faith and laboring cooperatively side by side in that great work. So we should not let conflict or bitterness ever arise between us. We should labor to not let that happen. We should labor for unity in the body of Christ. We must let our love abound more and more. Remember when Paul said that back in verse 9? So the second part of the chiasm makes this emphasis on laboring in unity very, very clear. He says, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay, can you stand just a little more grammatical Greek here? Just just hang on with me for a second. Hey, guys over there, wake up. Yeah, okay, we got him. All right, pay attention now. So the word striving together, it's soon atlantas. And it's a compound word. Soon came into English with as in Greek it's like S U N, but in English it's S Y N. It shows up in all kinds of our words, and it means with or together, like synergy or synthetic or synthesis. So there's all kinds of English words that have that. And so this is one of those Greek words where that comes from. So it's got this prefix on it, these three letters, soon. And then and then it's the word. Well, it's the word, word, the word athlete, basically. It's where the word athlete comes from. Athlos is the root word of it. It means to contest or strive to achieve something or win something, uh, some kind of skill. So, so we are to strive together like athletes. That's his idea. We are spiritual athletes striving together as a team, cooperatively laboring hard for what? For the faith of the gospel. We are to stand tenaciously and labor cooperatively for what God is doing in the world. That's our reason for being here. That's why you are left on earth if you believe in Jesus. Why didn't you just go right to heaven? Because there's work to do. There's fruitful labor here. And that's it. Standing and striving. Standing on the truth and striving to get it out. To make it real. To make it real in our lives and share it. Since Paul uses sort of a team image there, you know, I was thinking um, we really should think of church life as a team. And of course, in modern culture, there's all kinds of experts in sports and business about teamwork and what, what the elements of teamwork. And, you know, some of the common things they always say should be there are responsible leadership, good communication, a willingness of members of the team to sacrifice for the team. Loyalty to the team is essential. Dealing with problems quickly and honestly is essential. 
you could get all that right out of the New Testament. I mean, that's all pretty standard teamwork, right? That's all standard teamwork qualities, and it matches what the Bible says. Leaders have to meet very high qualifications of character in the Bible. First Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. The leaders need to care about the people they serve. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Their authority has to be respected and honored by the team, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And then we have this whole idea of our our organic unity that is unique to the New Testament, this whole idea that we are one body, so every part is essential and important. And I just chose to go to Romans 12, 4 through 6 for that, just to think about that. Paul says, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If you're a Christian, you have a gift and you are to exercise that gift. You are to use it. For what purpose? For progress and joy. To bring progress and joy into the lives of other people. So that reality, our union as the body of Christ, there are major responsibilities that come along with that. In fact, if you just kind of kept reading from there in Romans chapter 12 and you got down to verse 10, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Just obeying those basic commands leads to great teamwork. And it actually requires teamwork. We have to help each other do that because we all have our gifts to use in the body. It is teamwork. Teamwork for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. Soon Atlantis. Stand firm in one spirit. Stand and strive. Brothers and sisters, you've got to stand and strive. That's what we're called to do. Stand firm in one spirit. That means unified. Strive as a team for the faith of the gospel. Okay, the other S word I mentioned is down in verse 28 now. And that's the word, I'm just using the word steady. That the word doesn't appear here, but the idea does. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that, too, it's from God. So don't let opposition to your faith make you alarmed or flustered. That's part of following Christ. There could be many consequences to following Jesus that make it very hard. Some people are going to be rejected by their family and their friends for following Jesus. Some people will be persecuted physically 
not just mocked or ridiculed, but actually go to prison or maybe even suffer physical torments or even death. That's happening all over the world today. By far, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world today. And I saw firsthand Chinese believers how overall they've shown incredible grace and strength and courage in the face of horrible persecution. And they've been steady. They have not been alarmed by their opponents. They've not gotten flustered or thrown off course. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Seeing persecution from an eternal perspective is essential for us. Heaven is forever. This world and our life in this world is short. So when the Lord says your reward in heaven is great, that's serious. It's not only great, it's like forever great. It's long-lasting. It's eternal. And he means it. So if you believe it, that should be a world-changing reality in your heart that you can put up with anything here now. That's what Paul did for the sake of that great reward in heaven. And that's where Paul goes in verse 29. He, he even calls getting in trouble a gift. It's a gift. Verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So he actually sees this as a, a gift, a blessing to suffer for Jesus' sake. That is truly to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not crazy, super saint stuff, some kind of fanaticism. It's just believing what we know to be true. Believing Jesus, believing his own words. Remember that 1 Corinthians 4 passage I read earlier this morning about Paul's apostolic life? Hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, working with his own hands, persecuted, slandered, the scum of the world. And yet he says all throughout Philippians to rejoice, to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, he says. Horatius Bonar was one of the most insightful preachers of the 19th century, and he preached a sermon on 1 Corinthians 4, that little section there that Paul describes it. And he, the name of the sermon is Apostolic Sighs. Sigh, like S-I-G-H, you know, like, oh. <laughs> it's a sigh of an apostle. And he talks about believers feeling the sadness of Paul, the heartache of ministry, which was very real, but not the joy, losing the joy. See, Paul managed to keep that joy no matter what trials, difficulties, and great sorrows that he had, and he had deep ones. So I want to read a little paragraph from that sermon for you. He says, With some I fear there is more than the apostles' sorrow. They do not perhaps repent having taken up the cross. In other words, they don't repent of becoming Christians, but they shrink sometimes from what it has brought upon them. They counted on a little suffering, but it has come too much. They gladly took up the cross, but they had not ascertained its weight or its sharpness. 
They were prepared for some bitterness, but not for all this gall and wormwood. They made ready for battle, but the fight has proved sorer and longer than they dreamed of. They were not unwilling to bear shame for his name, but the reproach has proved heavier than they can bear. They knew that they were to meet resistance from the world, but not all this enmity, this malignity, this misrepresentation. They did not refuse sacrifice and suffering, but the poverty, the disappointment, and the all but broken heart have gone beyond their calculations. The wounds are deeper, the fiery darts are sharper, the furnace is hotter, the road is rougher, the hill is higher, the stream is deeper than they had anticipated. They do not wish they had not become Christians, but they hardly know what to do, nor which way to turn. They submit, but they do not count it all joy. They have the sadness of the apostle without his exulting gladness. His was but half a sorrow because of the joy. Theirs is but half a joy because of the sorrow. In such a case, they need to be put in mind of the apostolic hope by which the primitive church was sustained, lest Satan should get an advantage over them, and lest they be weary and faint in their minds. That's deep. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Brothers and sisters, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together like a winning team of athletes for the sake of the gospel. That's what it's all about. And be steady, in no way alarmed by your opponents, because that is God's gift. It's a sign of your salvation, and these incredible rewards await us for being faithful in difficulty. Most of all, pursue that perfect combination that Paul speaks of in verse 25, progress and joy in the faith. Grow and keep joyful in Christ. You will know you have grown up. You'll know you have grown up in Christ when you can say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord, the road can be hard, as it was for Paul. But if the scum of the world can find true joy in Jesus, then we can too. So show us the path of progress and joy in our faith and help us to stand and strive together for its great truths. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers. Stay strong. Encourage each other, and we'll be together again. Thank you. God bless.